You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. We've been having a conversation here about the land value tax, and I've invited my friend Joe Minicosi back to have that conversation with me. I think maybe we should start with the story of the inspiration of Georgism or where the land tax came from. Can you start with the woman with the great eyebrows? I can't remember her name right now, but. Uh, Elizabeth Maggie Phillips. Okay, and I say great eyebrows in air quotes. (laughs) Yeah, you kind of have to Google a picture of her. And Elizabeth Maggie Phillips is part of the Georgist movement. So when Henry George was talking about the land value tax, it it was kind of colloquial known as Georgism or, or land value tax, but it's really challenging the economic system of how we use land. Many great descriptions you all have had. Actually, one of my favorite videos of yours is the the podcast that you did with the whiteboard um, yeah, yeah. explaining uh, <laughs> the, the land value tax. But, but basically, it was simply dealing with land speculation in the 1800s that, the, that you shouldn't be penalized for putting a beautiful building up. And it's real simple. When you have a tax system that's based on value, the more value in the building, the higher the taxes. So if you build a granite building, there's actually a tax disincentive to build a granite building versus a tilt-up metal panel building because the metal panel building is going to be cheaper and pay less taxes. Anyhow, with uh, Georgism, Elizabeth Maggie Phillips, and I don't know if it was in her frustration dealing with people that couldn't change their their attitude toward economic systems, uh, but she basically aimed at children by creating a, a board game called the Landlord's Game to teach us about the value of, of land um, and location. That board game was eventually converted into being Monopoly, and I, I don't think she was paid for the creation of the game. I think they just basically created a competitor. But anyway, if you think about the rules of Monopoly, the location matters. So Park Place has tremendous amounts of value. When you assemble it with Boardwalk and then you put buildings on it, that's how you put somebody else out of, the, out of business in the game. You basically drive up the rents to take everybody else out. That's the land value lesson that we somehow haven't been able to convert into how do we operate our cities. You spent a lot of time in Italy. Did you ever get down to Alborobello and see the Truly? No, I didn't. But after you made that after after seeing the post about it in Strong Towns, I really want to go there. I didn't make it down there. So let me give this, and then I want you to talk about the Mansford roof and line and some of the other tax responses over the years. But in, in Alborobello, I, I got a, a tour of this place and they have these very unique little, in fact, I got one sitting on my desk over here, these unique little buildings that have the roof is just stacked uh, rock. There's no mortar to it at all. The tale that we were told, and I actually looked it up later and it's true, is this was done for tax purposes. The Italians uh, at the time, you would be taxed out of Naples. They would you know, come across over to Albrobello and the tax people would show up and you were only going to be taxed on your completed home. And if your home was a work in progress, you know, if you were building it, it wasn't done yet, so you wouldn't be taxed on it. So when the word went out that the, you know, the tax people are coming, the tax people are coming, whatever it was, you would quick go out and tear your roof off. 
uh, you'd take all the bricks off and you'd set them on the ground. And then when the tax people show up, and I can imagine these Italians, you know, and they're kind of, well, you know, I, this is uh, this is my house. I'm working on it. It's a work in progress. And of course, you know, you've been in Italy. A work in progress can take decades. So. <laughs> don't tax me. I, I don't have anything. And then the tax people would move on and they'd reassemble their roof. It, it's one of those things where the tax system basically encouraged people to do something that on the surface seems irrational. I mean, why wouldn't you just have a finished house? Why would you want to do this? But in response to the tax system was actually very rational. Talk a little bit about some of the other instances where people have done odd things uh, or things that maybe appear odd because of the the tax incentives. In France, the uh, the mansard roof, you were essentially anything below your roof line was considered your building, and anything above it wasn't. So, you know, people stole the mansard roof as a typology. Francois Mansart was building like chateaus out in the out in the farmlands with these huge steep roofs, and so they basically applied those to the buildings and stuck stories up in it, the building area up in the roof line wasn't considered part of the building. In England, uh, people used to be taxed on the number of windows you had because it was really easy for the assessor to just walk by your property and count your windows. And glass was expensive in the 1700s. So they figured if you had a lot of windows, then you had a lot of wealth. So people started over the 100 years, and it was King William III that put that in place. And over that 100-year period, people started boarding up their windows or bricking them in to avoid taxes. After about 100 years of that, they, they changed their tax system. I think there's a a place in Asia, I want to say it was, uh, maybe it's India, maybe it's Bangladesh, where they still have the, if you don't finish your building. Um, so people actually have pieces of concrete that come up with a rebar sticking out on their roof. And they're like, someday my kids will live up there. I'm still working on that. Taxes are an economic driver that have behavioral consequences. And if you think about what people did to change the behavior with smoking, the first thing that they did is they taxed the heck out of it because that's going to drive consumer behavior. You and I tend to look at taxes as if you own something, you should pay for it, right? So if I have an iPhone, I'm paying for the the metal case that's around the, the phone and the glass screen. I'm paying for that object. And what cities do is they aren't accounting for those objects that they buy. They just have this arbitrary tax measure that's based on valuation. So we're seeing all the distortions in that in the physical world just by driving around and looking at buildings. I think one of the things that drew me to the land tax as being one of these things that should at least be in the city's toolbox is just the fact that as an engineer, I worked on so many projects where we added incredible amounts of value to land, raw land, and essentially saw no increase in, in the tax capacity we would go out and we would run sewer and water all over the place and build roads. And sometimes that would be assessed. Sometimes it wouldn't be. Regardless of whether it was assessed or not, the long-term cost became the public's like holding costs, right? Those are the infinite costs that the public bears over and over again to maintain this stuff. And the reality is the taxes on these places never changed. We would make these huge public investments and essentially make someone wealthy on paper. And until they went out and did something on that property, they would just have that wealth with a very, very low like tax capacity. And I've seen places sit for decades in this scenario. You, you and I were at Fenway Park last year uh, looking out at empty parking lots 
around some of the most valuable real estate in the country going, how is this possible? Well, it's possible because the carrying costs of that are very, very low. What's the distorting effect that you've come across from the property tax, particularly in, I think, cities that are growing or seeing some kind of like upward, upward market pressure? What are some of the side effects of like the current property tax system? From a land valuation standpoint, the way that the assessment methodology works is the value with air quotes around it doesn't really happen until somebody transacts in the marketplace. So if you go out and do an engineering project and extend a road and pipes and all this stuff, from a public standpoint, you've made a commitment to that real estate that that we as the public have just given infrastructure to you, the private landowner, and invested so that your land is worth something because your land wouldn't be worth anything until that pipe and that road gets out there. But we're never really measuring the cost of that pipe and road against the value of that land that's out there. And so, you know, you could sit on that property forever and not do anything with it. And that's where land value taxation would, or some other version of that, would provide a a capture to that investment that you put in. But once somebody transacts, then the the assessor goes out there and says, okay, we now know what the market will bear for this property. We see different um, value growth that happens in properties. I think I showed you the the Minneapolis version where we had public access to lakes um, versus private access to lakes. And in the case of where only private individuals could buy land adjacent to the lake, they captured all the value at the edge of the lake. And you saw the value of the dirt being really high because the assessors like people will pay a lot for it. But in the case where the neighborhood had access to a lake and a park and a public amenity of a greenway going around the lake, the entire neighborhood saw value enhancement in their value. It's kind of hard because I'm, I'm talking about a picture now. Um, but to see it in action in the model, it's a value enhancement that you can actually plan for or, or work with if you're thinking about the public asset. There's this effect that I kept running into as an engineer when we would go out and we would do a, uh, say, a rehab project on a street. And, you know, it would be a street that, that needed some help, needed some love, a uh, place that was a little run down. And we would go in and we'd say, well, we're going to not only fix the street, but we're going to make these other kind of improvements that are designed to make this neighborhood more valuable, make this neighborhood wealthier. What would happen is the property owners would all show up and a lot of them were landlords uh, who you know had rental properties in the neighborhoods. Those were the ones that we tend to get the most pushback. And they would say to us, don't do that. You're going to make the property, my property worth more. And then I'm going to have to pay more taxes. Talk about, a little bit about the disincentive that we've created for making improvements and how that maybe affects, especially some, I think, poorer neighborhoods, neighborhoods that are starved for capital. It does affect them. And it's oftentimes what ends up happening is, you know, there, there's a couple ways of looking at it. One is you have the government that says, we're broke, we need more money, let's go into that neighborhood and improve it and get its values up so that we can collect more money, which, okay, I get it. But at the same time, it's like, could you just start to look at why you're broke? If you're going to tax me less, for wasting land. So there's an incentive baked in the land valuation where I get a discount when I consume more real estate. So I could be across the street from you, you have an acre of land and I have 20 acres, we're on the same street. I'm being taxed per acre a lot less than you because I happen to have a lot more real estate. Well, I also get a lot more frontage of road, a lot of more, I get get the same access to pipe that you get. 
but I'm paying less for it. So that's one distortion in the marketplace. Secondly, it's like, so if you don't see that you're bleeding money all over the place, going over to that neighborhood and driving their taxes up is kind of a quirky way to solve your financial abuse. And it's true. You're going to actually drive people's taxes up if you improve their value. But whether or not you're efficient with your infrastructure or billing properly, that's a bigger question. I'm always reminded of an old colonial barb. It's actually been attributed to Huey Long, uh, Governor Long of, of um, or Senator Long, sorry, of Louisiana. It's my favorite quote. It's, uh, don't tax me, don't tax the, tax the fella behind the tree. And that actually goes back to our colonial roots. We were essentially a country of tax evaders sitting across the pond from England, and we got irritated that they put a tax on our tea. And we thought that was inherently unfair and started a revolution because of it. I mean, there's bigger issues beyond that. But there's our country is formed on a tax revolt. It's human to not want to pay taxes. It's human to want to get all these government services for free and not pay for it. That's a natural reaction. But at the end of the day, you put a street down, you put a sidewalk in, you need to pay for it. That liability doesn't go away. My earliest days as an engineer here in my hometown, I worked on a lot of projects that is essentially were building big box stores. We got it a very short period of time because there was a bypass built around my city. We got Target, Walmart, ultimately Super Walmart, Home Depot, Menards, Fleet Farm, Costco. We got like the whole ring of them. And you're talking millions and millions of dollars of infrastructure to service these places, millions of dollars of roads, sidewalks, curbs, all the pipe. Can you tell the story of our experience in Kansas City with the Walmart guy at the, the tax assessors conference? Because it's one of those stories we've told before, but I think in the context of our taxing structure, it's a really powerful one. I get this a lot from people where they're just like, uh, you know, they just think I have a problem with Walmart. They're like, you hate Walmart because I, I always show Walmart versus a building downtown in, in, in Asheville. I tell folks, I'm like, look, don't you're, you're missing the point. If that's what you think the story is about that at, that at that conference, the assessor's conference it was actually we went to the one in Kansas City and he did the presentation. And then I went to the next one and I think it was in Sacramento. And I remember I called you up and said that I was going to tape it. <laughs> and, uh, I've got the recording um, right here. <laughs> yeah. The head of Walmart's property tax division, Charles Terrell, did this presentation on Walmart's plan going forward and how they're going to be changing their stores to being more of a Main Street store, um, doing all of these other products. But one of the things that was pretty evident in the presentation is here he is in front of 2,000 assessors, and he did this PowerPoint on how cheap his buildings are. So it's really simple. If you've got an audience of people that want to know the value of your property and you just basically go and disclose it and say, our buildings are essentially, if you think we beat up Procter & Gamble to make a lower price tide, you need to see what we do to our general contractors. We make cheap buildings. Now, the assessors are agnostic. If it's a cheap throwaway building, that's it. They can't make more value to it. It's just, it's a cheap throwaway building. So during Q&A, I asked uh, Mr. Terrell, I said, what's the useful life of one of your buildings? And he immediately shot back 15 years, maybe 20. We're designing that building to depreciate it as quick as possible and then build another building. Some of the folks listening to this podcast, you, your, your community may have experienced this before where they've actually got the second Walmart and the other one sitting down the road dead. It's an incentive to them to build another one and start another depreciation cycle. As far as where the truck drops off the goods, that's in, inconsequential to them. If it drops it off somewhere in the city, the distribution system's there already. 
if you think about that, they're designing the building for a useful life of 15 or 20 years. That's the useful life of a cat. You know, it's like a cat's going to last 15 years. We at least mourn the passing of a cat. But that Walmart is is once it opens its doors, it's on a it's on an accelerating skid to depreciate as quick as possible down to nothing. And they enjoy the benefit of that fast depreciation by paying less and less taxes as the building sits there. And then it goes dormant. And then you get your second Walmart and it starts to cycle over again. So this is all if you follow upstream, there's a financial incentive for the for the actor to act this way. So don't hate the player, hate the game. Understand that our tax system is driving what our city looks like. How would a land tax be different for a Walmart? What would that change about basically the underlying incentives of a Walmart building with millions of dollars of infrastructure run out to it and, and, and surrounding it? Well, when you go to Canada or Australia, New Zealand, these other places where we've worked, they actually have a higher value placed into the, the dirt system. So you see, they'll, they'll still have big boxes, but they're a lot smaller in land area because the land value is driving that. It's still not optimal. They still have boxes the way that we do, but they're just not wasting the real estate the way that we do. So there's that. It'll be a higher carrying cost. I think that with a land taxation, you'd also see a lot less speculation or the empty buildings around because you'd be you'd be paying for it one way or another. Would you have the the kind of dark store phenomenon where you the big box retailers will argue, you know, our buildings are junk, you're taxing us too high. And uh, you know, when we shut it because there's no transactions going on, it, it literally has no value. So drop it way down. Would a land tax change that phenomena? That's a more complex question. I think the uh, the assessors they actually were talking about dark stores back in that Kansas City conference that we went to. The assessors are all over it because it's patently unfair. It's like if you're going to do that for one building type, do that for all building types. My house should be valued as a as a comparable to an empty house in my neighborhood. Like it's it's kind of a crazy argument to make to just do it for one building typology. Lowe's, a corporation from our home state here of North Carolina, was a leader in getting this stuff passed in certain states. It's patently unfair. I, I do recommend that anybody on the podcast just Google IAAO, uh, IAAO, dark stores, and they've written extensively on this stuff. But as far as land value taxation, you know, the land will still be a higher percentage of the value because you'll still have an empty box sitting on top of it. So even if they are successful at getting um, dark stores initiatives passed in that community, and that has to be enabled by certain state statutes to do in a lot of places. But they're very good at getting that done. Um, Michigan experienced it pretty hard. If you have a higher land value basis in your property, then yes, you'll at least get some more revenue out of it than just a straight up dark store the way that it's currently done. I want to ask you kind of a last question about Pittsburgh and the experience that I had in Pittsburgh. And I, I know you've been there too. I was astounded by the number of old buildings in the core of Pittsburgh and just how gorgeous this city was. And quite frankly, before I ever went to Pittsburgh, I just pictured it as like a, a nasty steel town. I thought it would be a really poor version of uh, industrial city. I, I, I don't know what I was expecting, but I was not expecting what I found. When you contrast that with some of the other cities that I think have experienced similar impacts in their industrial base, a, a Cleveland, a Buffalo, even a Duluth, Talk a little bit about Pittsburgh and how maybe like the rational calculations of people with the tax system led to a, a very different outcome. 
So Pittsburgh in the in the seventies, this is the story that I've heard from Ray Gindros. In the seventies, they adopted land value taxation as a methodology for their city. And from the seventies through the eighties, they experienced the least amount of teardowns of any of the you know large American cities, particularly those in the Northeast, like Cleveland or Cincinnati, um, Syracuse, Buffalo. And the reason why is that if I had two buildings sitting side by side, pretty much any other American city, those two buildings are paying a tax value based on how much stuff is on that property. And so if I eliminate the stuff, I eliminate my value. Where in Pittsburgh, they're just like, sorry, you know, your tax value is going to be set commensurate to your locational value. Um, And then whatever building you do on top of it, yes, we'll hit you with some property taxes on top of that. But we're starting with a higher base in the dirt. So if you tear your building down, you've essentially lost your ability to get even the most modest amount of rents. In Pittsburgh, what they did is, you know, rather than tear the building down, I can at least get some rent off my property just by lowering the rent. I'll be able to at least afford my taxes. If I eliminate the building, I'll still have to pay a higher tax threshold. And just charging people to park there isn't going to do it. Where in, in Houston or even here in Asheville, if I tore a building down, I could cover the cost of it with what I charged for parking. Uh, just because I'm just paying taxes on whatever raw improvements land. I have on, yeah, yep. raw land plus asphalt, so they could buck fifty a square foot. Right. Pittsburgh ended up changing their tax policy, and I think it wasn't wasn't too long ago. I think it was only like ten years ago or so. The thing about land value taxation is it has to be en- enabled by the state. And our ask, whenever we present, is that at least let the state allow the municipalities to use the tool if they wanted to, but don't get in the way from a state level. So it has been enabled. It's it's always been enabled in Pennsylvania. There's uh, Fairhope, uh, Alabama is an anomaly in the state of Alabama. I think they're the only ones that are allowed to use it, um, land value taxation. Um, and then there's, uh, I think Vermont enabled it. But for the majority of American states, it's, it's like we can't do this in North Carolina. And so the question is why? Why don't our state officials or state legislature at least allow the cities to have that tool? So when we do work, what we tend to rec- recommend is some other form that operates like a land value taxation to at least capture the infrastructure. Um, states that do something similar, uh, you and I were talking before this call about transportation utility fees, uh, which is actually thinking of your road system as a, as a utility. That's a way to kind of synthetically get toward doing something like a land value tax. And Oregon, Texas, Utah have all experienced using stuff like that. We looked at in Lafayette, the sewer charges and how if you were right next to the sewage treatment plant, you paid the same rate as the guy who's eight miles away and has to have a sewage pump 20 times. Changing those fee structures to uh, basically where you have higher costs, have higher fees, kind of gets you closer to that, right? Yeah, it's, it's basically being, you know, thinking geospatially about your investment, that, that what, do you, what do you have in the infrastructure investment and, and where does it go? And how, and how do you pay for it? But, but you know, like those pumps in Louisiana, they had, what, 275 pumps. So it is, it is all spatial. You just said something about looking at this geospatially. I want to end on that because I want you to talk a little bit about, this is probably unfair to ask you, but I know a lot of times when we have conversations about taxes, they tend to become almost like moral conversations. You know, what's our moral conviction of how things should 
be assessed and what people should pay. And there's a certain, like, I, I think moral dimension that a lot of people bring to this conversation. When you look at it, you tend to look at it geospatially. Here's your costs. Here's your revenues. I think the moral dimension comes after that, but you know, there's got to be an understanding of what is actually going on. If you were advising someone today who's thinking about this, what are they going to get from essentially setting morality aside to look at the numbers rationally before going back into that moral equation? What, what are they going to gain from that? One of the, I guess, points that we typically close our presentations with is, you know, it's a term we call geo-accounting, that if you can account for this stuff in a geographic sense first and then start there and just know where your money is and where it's going and whether or not there's equity happening in that disbursement or also just know where you're bleeding your your money so your accountant doesn't care if you buy a boat right your accountant cares if you can afford a boat your accountant's not going to pass moral judgment on you for buying that boat we take up the same attitude that there is a spatial understanding of this put the money down so you know where you're spending it. It's just basically making a simple physical budget and showing how the the physical environment of your development pattern and its financial consequences of those choices. And and that's essentially what a city is to us. And then it's up to the community to have that conversation about whether or not the way that they're spending their money meets their their moral plan. So their their whatever adopted comprehensive plan or their city's municipal goals that they have for their their city council or commission you know it's like if we say this, these are the goals that we want to hold ourselves to but our financial audit comes back and shows that we're doing none of that then they need to resolve where the miss happened you know does that make sense it, totally and i think one of the revealing things about your work is that when we line up what people say they want to accomplish and then we line up this the the math they're always at odds with each other, right? I mean, almost always. Oh, totally. You know, and, it, and it's, this isn't to shame people. It's just to understand that we've been operating with habits and in silos. Part of what we've done ma- making the modern American city is that we've siloed out these different departments and divisions. You know, bef- before World War II, city managers handle everything soup to nuts. And in making the city more efficient, we've also pulled ourselves away from talking to each other about what stuff costs. Um, I know that when I worked inside city government and planning, we never really talked to the public works department about the cost of a road, yet there there are consequences. A lot of what Strong Towns does, what you do in your talks, what I do in mine, is is basically bringing us back to a common language and understanding the spatial relationships of all this stuff. That's Joe Minicosi with Urban 3. If you haven't checked out their work, you're missing what I think is the best analysis being done in the country, the most thoughtful, comprehensive, and I think intellectually compelling way of looking at cities today is coming out of a little firm out of Asheville, North Carolina called Urban 3. So check them out. Thanks, Joe. I absolutely love you, man. Thanks for helping out. Thanks, Chuck. Love you too. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh!